Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Thank God for His holy written word. Hallelujah. Yeah, thank God for inspiration, but we also need information, don't we? We need revelation so that we can walk in the light of God's will for our lives. I want to begin just by sharing with you, and I think you know this, you should know this, the Gospels have 89 chapters, 89 chapters in the Gospels. You've got Matthew with 28, you've got Mark with 16, you've got Luke with 24, and you've got John with 21, and if my math is correct, 89 chapters in the Gospels. Now, four of those chapters deal with the first 30 years of the life of Christ. Just four. Eighty-five years deal with the last three and a half years of his life. And then 29 of those 85 years deal with the last week of his life, which we call Passion Week. Now, think about that. Matthew is dedicating two-fifths of his gospel, Mark three-fifths of his gospel, Luke one-third of his gospel, and John, almost one-half of his gospel, all focus on the last week of the life of Christ on earth. Would you say the Holy Spirit was trying to let us know how important that week really is? Because you see, the things written in the Bible, they're not just pulled out of the air somewhere and say, let's throw that in there, let's throw this in there. All that that is in there is hand-selected by the Spirit of the living God to let us know these are the things that are very important. When it comes to all the healings that take place in the Bible, they're written there for a reason, for us to learn and glean some light from the experiences that these people had. And so they're hand-selected by the Spirit of God because we know this. If they were all written, the universe could never contain the books. Ever contain the books, right? So they're hand-selected. And so some things took place during the last week of Jesus' life and ministry that we want to talk about. And so in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, one of the things is this. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy. As a matter of fact, the last week of his life is rich with the fulfillment of many prophecies. And let me just add this to that statement. If you call yourself a prophet, then your prophecies better come to pass. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Well, rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a white steed. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a little premature. Riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. Now, it starts with the fulfillment of this prophecy that we see in John's Gospel, chapter 12. Let's look at it. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming, looked to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Fear not, he's quoting Zechari Zechariah's prophecy, daughter of Zion, 
Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at that time or at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. This is from the New King James Version. But the thing to remember is this. This last week is a prophetic week. Things are being fulfilled throughout this week that were prophesied many, many years prior to this. When Jesus comes to the Passover feast riding on a donkey, that was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And what was happening during that particular time was, really, there were two things that were prominent, or prominent, I should say. Number one, their minds were filled with history. Number two, their hearts were filled with anticipation and great expectation. You say, what's the history? Let's take a moment and think about it. They're making their way to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Three times a year, they're required to go there for certain feasts that they are mandated to fulfill and to be a part of. And what's happening along the way is this. The parents are teaching their children about the feast of the Passover. Because you see, God wants them to remember the Passover all the years of their lives, all the days of their life, and pass it on from one generation to the next generation. And so he mandates that they do what? They keep the feast of the Passover every year. And they tell their children this. Look, your ancestors were enslaved in Egypt. They were bound by Egyptian oppression. It was getting so fierce and so bad that they got to the place where they had to cry out to God for deliverance. God raised up a man by the name of Moses who was really reluctant to go at the beginning. But finally he went ahead and went to the Pharaoh. And he said to him, God has sent me to tell you to let my people go. Well, Pharaoh at first, you know, young people didn't listen. And as a result of his not listening, the first plague was manifested. Now, I want you to know that there were 10 plagues altogether. But I also want you to know this. Each of those plagues defied one of the gods of the Egyptians. Each one was a direct act of defiance. In other words, you think your gods are great? Let them protect you from this. Let them protect you from that. They were all strategically planned out by God so that they would defy the gods that they trusted in. And as a result, each one proved that God was greater than all the gods that they trusted in. And they finally got to the place to where they still rebelled and would not let God's people go. He gave them time after time, chance after chance. And finally, he just said, this is it. The last plague will be the angel of death in manifestation. Now, I want you to go tell your people, go find yourself a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. I want you to slay it. I want you to catch his blood in the basin. And I want you to roast it by fire. And I want you to eat it, the whole thing. And then I want you to take that blood, place it upon the doorpost and lintel of the house, and make sure or certain that your blood, that the blood of the lamb is there covering the door. Because you see, when the angel of death comes, and he will come, anyone whose house does not have blood will lose their firstborn son and their firstborn beast will all die. And I want you to know, children, they're telling their children this from year to year. That's what happened. I'm telling you 
that when the angel of death passed over all of Egypt, everyone's firstborn son died, except for the sons of the Israelites. Everyone's firstborn beast died, except those of the Israelites, if they had any. But I want you to know this. Where the blood was, there was protection from death. And we're to commemorate this year after year after year. Because you see, God brought us out. And do you know what the message was to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they will serve me. I want them to serve me, not you. And oh, they were brought out. They came out with silver. They came out with gold. There was not one feeble among their tribe. And they were on their way to a promised land. But they were in rebellion along the way under Moses and didn't get in. But under Joshua, a new generation was raised up and they got in because they believed by faith to get in. And they obeyed God and did it the right way. He brought them to a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And they prospered in the land. And God was their God. He defended them, protected them, and honored them, and so on and so forth. And so we want you to remember this. Year after year, that's what God did for your ancestors. And we are to serve him all the days of our lives. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be who we are. Well, during this particular last week of his life and during this celebration of the Passover, it was a busy time. There was a lot that was taking place. You've got to picture this. this really, census records tell us there were like two and a half million people hustling and bustling in all of Jerusalem. All of a sudden, Jesus is riding on a donkey coming out into the eastern gate, making his way down from the Mount of Olives into the eastern gate. I understand as I looked at some of the um, description of what took place, if the sun was shining at that time and it was bouncing off of the, the eastern gate and all the gold that was there and everything, it was almost like a brilliant glow that was shining as Jesus was coming in on this donkey. But again, something else is happening. This has never happened before. As he's coming in, People are being drawn to him. You see, Jesus only was in Jerusalem a few times during his ministry. Even his disciples said, you're really going to go there. They want to kill you. Why are you going to go there? He said, it's my time. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And he was not going to be distracted by anyone or anything. So he makes his way. All of a sudden, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. How many of you know the verse that... That tells us this is the day the Lord hath made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Do you know that Psalm 118 verse 24? But you know 25 says, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what day he was talking about? The day that God would come to save humanity. This is the day the Lord hath made. And as he's coming in, they're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they put a cloak around him and they put palm branches before him. And they throw their cloaks down on the ground. They were honoring him as the son of David, which means they recognize him as their Messiah. No doubt about it. No one has done what you have done. Lazarus was raised from the dead. We saw it. There's no one like you. You must be our Messiah. And can you imagine the hustle and bustle. You've got all these priests are taking all these lambs and they're scrutinizing them to make sure that they're flawless so they could be offered up as a sacrifice. And while they're looking over those lambs, there's a parallel that's going on here. They're, they're looking at the lambs. They're scrutinizing them for, for any kind of flaws. And the flawless Son of God, Lamb of God, is coming into the city to be scrutinized by Pilate and the leaders and everyone else. 
And guess what they found him to be? Without spot and without blemish. That's what they found. All this is going on at this time. They don't realize something's taking place here. The fulfillment of what they've been longing for for all these years is about to take place right before their very eyes. And they don't recognize it. They can't understand it. They don't see it. But yet they're a part of it. Something else is happening here. Something that we overlook even during this time of, of uh, Palm Sunday and celebrating this Passion Week. It's found in uh, Daniel's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. Look at what it says. Something else is being fulfilled. We're talking about some fulfillment of prophecies. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, the 70 weeks is if you know any kind, any kind of teaching at all. You've heard me say it many times. Seven weeks is 490 years. Okay? So, 490 years are determined upon thy people and the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, these six things he names, and number three, makes reconciliation for iniquity. And he goes on and says to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the decree, or the commandment to restore and rebuild and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, or sixty-nine weeks, or four hundred and eighty-three years. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks, or sixty-nine weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and for the and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. You say, what's that all about? The moment the decree went out to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to the coming of the Messiah would be 173,880 days. And do you know when he was riding on that donkey? Someone says God's always on time. It was 173,880 days when he got on that donkey and made his way into Jerusalem. Another prophecy being fulfilled. You know why? I don't know how many signs he could possibly give to let them know. It's like this big neon arrow flashing Messiah, 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 Messiah. But they couldn't see it. And so here we have him coming in. And remember this. They're hailing him as their Messiah. They're hailing him as their king, king of kings, lord of lords, king of David. After David, rather. And all this is going on. All of a sudden, the temple before him that's filled with all these people and all this hustle and bustle is about to experience something that happened only one time before. And it's about to happen again. But before I get to that, I want to share this with you. If the Messiah was supposed to come before A.D. 70, when the, the city and also the temple were destroyed, and when the temple was destroyed with the city and all the records, the birth certificates and the title deeds and all that, and they all burned up because everything was burned up in the city. And that's the way they kept record of all those things. Well, then... How can anyone claim to be from the line of the tribe of Judah? 
How can anybody verify that that's where they came from? That's their ancestry. They lost all that. You know what? God made certain of the fact that there was only one person that could possibly be the Messiah. And it all points to Jesus Christ. That's it. Because for 2,000 years since that has happened, they have no way of even presenting someone as a case to be the Messiah at all. They're still looking for their Messiah to come. And they don't know that he's already come. So he made certain that he would validate the Messiahship of Jesus Christ as their Messiah and as their King of Kings and Lord of Lords by putting everything in place that needed to be in place. And now, here they are. Watching it unfold before their eyes. But they're blinded to it. They can't see it. They don't understand it. They don't even know what's going on. Can you imagine being part of that kind of history? That this is happening before your eyes. This prophetic event is occurring right before you. And you are so blinded to it. You have no clue as to what's going on. Do you see how we are as people? You see how limited our thinking is? How our minds are? I asked Andrew just the other day riding in a car with him. He's a good one to bounce some things off. Because he's got some pretty good statements that he makes along the way. He had me laughing. Pretty hysterically. But uh, I asked him about, about Jesus and his thoughts are and, you know, what he would think, you know. And no matter what he's been through in his life at all, all he talks about, heaven with Jesus. Jesus is what heaven is all about. Jesus is what living on earth is all about. And no matter what I go through, Dad, no matter what I face, no matter what I see, no matter what I feel, I long for the day that I will be with him once again. His focus is eternal, not temporal. Now, he's got some ideas about temporal things, but we won't go there. <sighs> They're pretty funny. But... You know, just, just, to, just to pick his brain a little bit, just to, 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 to have him remind me of the things that he saw when he was there in glory. And for him just to talk about the beauty of the place. And then finally get to the place where he actually says, but dad, no matter how beautiful it is, the greatest thing about heaven is Jesus. And that's all there is to it. Amazing. During that time that Jesus was there in Jerusalem, there was a mixed bag of people. We're talking about a mixed crowd. First of all, look at Matthew chapter 21 and look at verse 9 or 8 and 9. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, to the son of David. There it is. That means he's the Messiah. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In other words, he's, he's, they're calling upon all of heaven to rejoice and be glad. Just like uh, in the incarnation when they cried out Hosanna. And, and they just celebrated the birth of Christ. Well, that's the same thing here. They're crying out and saying, let all of heaven rejoice. The Messiah has come. The son of David is here. Now remember, this was a crowd filled with a lot of people that owed deep gratitude to Jesus for what he did for them. 
So we're talking about the praisers here. We're talking about the grateful ones here. We're talking about those that really had this personal contact with Jesus that were so thrilled beyond measure. Well, for example, in Matthew 4, you, you, we have a group of people that were there, probably, that he delivered from lunacy, sickness, and diseases of all sorts. Then Matthew 8, when he comes down from the mountain, after his sermon on the mount, we have a leper that comes to him. And says, if you will, you can make me clean. He says, I will. And he sets him free. He's there. Then you've got, of course, after that, you've got the Roman centurion who said, my servant's at home, sick of the palsy. They're there. And they're celebrating the Messiahship of Jesus. And then you've got Peter's mother-in-law who he healed of a fever and raised her up. And then you've got, as the list goes on, the Syrophoenician woman. You've got the blind man. You've got, hey, thank God she had an issue. But now we know the name of blind Bartimaeus. He was Bartimaeus. But guess what? He's no longer blind Bartimaeus. He is sightseeing Bartimaeus. He is there. Then you've got the deaf, the dumb, the maimed. And also we've got those that were dead, like Lazarus, who is raised from the dead. Then the widow of Nain. And we can go on and on and on. And there's a crowd of people that are there that are rejoicing and celebrating and just going wild over the fact that he's truly the Messiah. He's here. This is exciting. This is amazing. This is wonderful. And they're thrilled. Hmm. But we got another group, and that's the group we call the curiosity seekers. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 9. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might, that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. They wanted to see him, yeah, and they also wanted to see this Lazarus, yeah, because they were curiosity seekers. See, they were traveling around to find out any good tidbit that they can get that was going on there. And so we don't know how sincere they were, but probably they were just curiosity seekers. Then, of course, you got the true seekers. And look at John 12, 20. Look at these. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida, of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sirs, we would see. See here means to with wide, eyes wide open, really get into his mind and get into his heart. They had a desire to know him. Now remember how the Bible teaches us that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. They're coming. Gentiles are coming. The Jews are coming. The Greeks are coming. All these people are coming. They're being drawn to him for one reason or another. And they're among that crowd. And then, of course, we've got the ones that we've got to watch out for. And that is the indignant. Look at Matthew 21 again. These are the indignant. God was, they were displeased with Jesus being there. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore what? They were indignant in other translations. That's probably the biggest word that is used in all the other translations. They were indignant. They were absolutely irate. They were angry. They were livid. They were resentful. They were scornful. I mean, to tell you, they, they just despise his very existence. Why? Because, look, all the people are going to him. They should be coming to us, and they're all going to him. All this hustle and bustle is taking place as Jesus is making his way into where the temple is as the sacrificial lamb of God. And then you've got those that wanted him destroyed completely. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him and what did jesus say for what good work do you want to bring this destruction upon me well it's not for any good work but because you made yourself to be the son of god 
Well, I am. I told you I am. I said before Abraham was, I am. I don't know how much clearer it can be to you that you are looking at Jehovah manifest in the flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now we've got all these different attitudes of people. Whenever you get a group of people together, you're going to have all kinds of different attitudes, right? So you've got the worshipers. You've got the truth seekers. You've got the curiosity seekers. You've got these that are indignant. You've got those that are displeased. And you've got these here that want to destroy him. Why? Because he did everything good, everything well. That's how they were. Well, to show you how fickle we can be in human nature, how can they go from Hosanna, 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 to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him in a few short days? Well, since you asked, look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. This is exactly what happened here. Many prophetic events came to pass during this week. And a biggie is going to be coming up right here in a moment. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, hmm, if you only knew, even you, at least in this day, the things which belong to your peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that... Thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and they shall lay thee even, hit, even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not what they didn't they know. The time of your visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying to them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Well, to the casual observer, you might think that these people here before that we see just giving him all this laud and, and, and pomp and circumstance and everything, that they really, 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 really love him. And they're serving him. But as I go back to the very beginning, yeah, they were excited because of what was going on. But you see, they had their own thoughts in their own heart. The expectation was there, but they also had this. He's going to deliver us from Roman tyranny. He's going to set us free from Roman oppression. He is going to take us out from among them like they came out of Egypt. He's going to raise up a mighty nation once again. He's going to make us prominent as far as the national scene is concerned. And they were thrilled beyond words. Besides... Who can do signs and wonders like he did? Moses did it way back then. But this guy, he's done even greater than Moses. A greater than Moses is here. And so they were just enthralled with this, excited about this. But when all of a sudden they found out that, you know what? Jesus' idea about um, peace was a little bit different than what theirs is. You see, Jesus, to them, was going to be this hero. Nationally, in the natural world. But Jesus said to them, my kingdom is not of this world. Not at all is of this world. No. It's not temporal. It's eternal. Get your eyes off the temporal and get your eyes on the eternal. They were shallow in their thinking. They were shallow in their faith. It wasn't long before they would say crucify him because they were shallow. Of course, I understand why. Jesus said why. 
You didn't understand the time of your visitation. You didn't see the time of your visitation. What's he talking about? There came a time when he actually said, look, I'm coming. He's been saying I'm coming for years, year after year after year after year after year after year after year. And finally, guess what? He came. And he visited them. He was right there with them. He was talking to them. John said we touched him. We held him. We heard him. We embraced him. He could say, I laid my head on the bosom of God of all creation. That was our time of visitation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would take you under my wings, but you didn't see, you didn't recognize, you didn't know the time of your visitation. I came to you. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Look at these verses. Jesus saw the city ruined and destroyed. He saw it burned to the ground. He saw it one, not one brick upon another, not one stone left unturned. He saw it leveled. He saw it ruined. He saw it destroyed. He wept over Jerusalem. He cried out. You didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't know that I am who I am. And I've told you all this time who I am. And look what it says. He came to his own and his own gladly received him. No, they received him not. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. They refuse to have their eyes open. They refuse to see the truth. If you can't get someone to believe after you raise a dead man who was decaying after four days to believe, what chance do I have to tell somebody you need Jesus? What? Yeah, he was dead four days and his body was decaying. Some believed and some believed not. Like, what? Do you remember the blind man says to the religious leaders, when has it ever been known that someone would open the eyes of a blind man? You don't believe in him? All I can tell you is this. I was blind, but now I see. And he did it. They couldn't see anything. They were blinded to it. Why? Because of their attitude. They didn't want to know. As a result, of course, they didn't receive him. Now we get to that place. Here we are. He's riding on the donkey. They're throwing down their palm branches. They're exalting him as the king of kings. The son of David, their Messiah. Their deliverer, their true deliverer. You see, not from Egypt, but from Rome now. And now he's going to make them a national power. But that wasn't God's way. Now, Jesus says, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Because you see, my idea of peace doesn't come through national prominence. It comes through a cross. And your deliverance is from the powers of darkness and sin and the effects of the fall of man. So do you want it? Now here it goes. He goes into the temple area. Probably gets off of his donkey. All this hustle and bustle is going on. And now he goes into the temple. Can you think of another time when a Passover, during a Passover, does this happen? Well, the beginning of his ministry. Look what happens in John chapter 2. This is the beginning of his ministry. Beginning of his ministry. He just turned the water into wine and thought, mm, let's see, next thing to do, I'm going I'm I'm to tear up the temple. 
I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a rebel. I'm going to tear up the temple. And the, Jews, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out uh, the money changers, the changers of the money, and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. The disciples remember that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Another prophecy that's fulfilled here. This is the beginning of his ministry. Now, at the beginning of the ministry, they're like, What in the world just happened? It's the fat Passover feast. We're not used to someone doing this during the feast of the Passover. Where's this, where's this guy coming from? Well, then he proceeds to live his life for three and a half years. It does everything to raising the dead after four days. And now he's coming in to Jerusalem. You know, Matthew, I think, says he was there one time. I think Mark says one time. I think Luke says maybe three or four times. And John says maybe four times. Once was when he was dedicated in a temple and all that. So he wasn't there very often. And he wasn't there because they wanted to kill him. But now... Remember it says, he said, his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Oh, do you really want to go there to the Feast of Passover? Remember the one verse that says, we don't know if he would come or not. Because his life was in danger. But oh, he said, no, no. His face is set like a flint. He's going to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter what's going to happen from here on out because he's ready for it. He's ready for it. And so he enters in. He gets off of his donkey. And he goes into the temple. And look at Matthew. Look at what it says. The first time was in John. This is the last time. Matthew 21. When he was come in Jerusalem, this is right after, this, this is the past, this is Palm Sunday or whatever you want to call it. Palm, some say it's Palm Monday, Palm Sunday. To me, it doesn't matter if it's Palm Wednesday. It's Palm. Jesus entered Jerusalem. When he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast, this is the second time, cast out all them that sold and bought into the temple and overthrew the table of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves and the blind and the lame came into him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, which means save us now to the son of David, they were sore displeased or indignant and said unto him, hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said to them, yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise, another prophecy. And he left them. And went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. What an entrance. Palm Sunday ends in the temple. And he does this. You've got to understand this. These people make their living that way. They sell. They buy. They, they have this merchandise. They overcharge. You think you get overcharged. Don't take a little dove and just cost a dollar. Make it $20 to people that can't afford $20. And that's what they were doing. Plus, they were doing it in a place where he says, that's not what I want you to do here. That's what my father's house is all about. 
And so he goes in there for the second time and says, you have destroyed the work of God here. My house is not to be a house of merchandise. It's not to be a house of social entertainment. It's not to be a house where you satisfy human curiosity. This is the place where the living God has set himself to manifest his glory. This is the place where I've come to visit with you. And I've come to touch your hearts and change your lives. And Jesus was so, you talk about indignant. You know, you could be angry and sin not. So in his estimation, in his eyes, what they were doing was so sacrilegious. I'm about healing humanity. I'm about causing the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the maimed to be made whole. And listen, he gives us four things here in this Matthew. He says this, my father's house is a house of purity. He cleansed it. All of that secularization and everything else that was going with it and connected to it, he cleansed it. It's a house of prayer. He began to pray for the people. It's a house of purity. It's a house of prayer. It's a house of power. The power of God was on display in such a tremendous way that those that were lame, blind, deaf, all that. Can you imagine once again, right there in the temple on Palm Sunday, all this happening right before their very eyes? And then he says, it's a house of perfected praise. You want to talk about some perfected praise, some mature praise? Let me tell you something. When you go to a church service and you see all these people that are blind, deaf, dumb, or maimed, and, and, and so on and so forth, and all of a sudden they're all just completely healed and restored to life once again, there's going to be a lot of shouting that's going on. And that's exactly what took place. And then he left. And you know they wanted to kill him. Then you know the rest of the story for the rest of the week. But the point is, this is what began his week of passion. He gave them every opportunity beforehand, and now he gives them opportunity once again. And if they knew anything whatsoever about the scriptures, they would have known their Messiah was coming in on a colt, on, on a donkey. And there he was right before their eyes. Well, in conclusion, I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 19, because you know why? We can ask ourselves, where would we be in this crowd? In this crowd of people, where would I be? Do I identify with any person that's in this crowd? Do I identify with the true worshiper of God that really wants to worship him in spirit and in truth? Do I identify with someone that says, well, you know, maybe I'm among those that as long as things were going my way and things are going well, then I'm okay. But the moment things went sour, the moment I started to realize he's not concerned about me becoming free from Roman uh, control and oppression. You know, his is a, a, a heavenly kingdom. I want help now. And they went from praise him or Hosanna to crucify him. Are you among those uh, religious people that say, yeah, he's this way, but leave him in the box. Put him in a box right there. And that's just the way he's going to conduct himself. I see it this way. We're going to live this way. We want the law. We want to do it our way. They want him crucified too. They want to destroy him too. So the list goes on and on about the crowd of people and their attitude that they have towards Jesus. But just to help us to see it correctly. The first time he came, he came as a sacrificial lamb. He came as an infant. He came riding as a, on a donkey as a humble, humble individual. 
that says, I lay down my life to you. You can spit on me. You can pluck out my beard. You can whip me with the cat of nine tails. You can put me on a cross. You can put a crown of thorns on my head. You can pierce my side. You can do whatever you want to do to me. I'm yours. I am yours completely. Have at it. But I'm telling you something right now. I don't fear him who can kill the body. Not at all. You see, I fear him who can cast the body and the soul into an eternal fire. So go ahead. Have at it. But you know what? I love the world so much. Greater love has no man than this. I'm laying down my life for all of you. So have at it. But in the back of his mind, he's saying, he sees the joy on the other side of the cross. And what does he see? You want to get on board and with the right crowd of people? Read this. Oh, he came on a donkey as a humble individual, as a suffering servant, right? But in Revelation 19, can we, I saw heaven open. Guess what? You're with this crowd. And behold, a white, ho a white horse, a steed. Where's the donkey? And he that sat upon him is called faithful and true. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. Oh, his eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. His, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Oh, thank God, it is not the shed blood. It is the applied blood that delivered them from the angel of death. Is it not? Thank God it was shed. Thank God it's dipped in blood. And thank God that blood, praise God, has cleansed you and me from all unrighteousness. It was dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. He had, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it... He should smite the nations. He should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. <laughs> What's that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you covered by the blood? Are you cleansed by the blood? How the, have you had a dip in the blood? Are you washed in the blood? Are you stamped, praise God, approved of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ? Then stand up and give the King of kings and the Lord of lords a shout of praise as they did on the day that he rode in on that. Hallelujah.